Hello everyone and welcome to Side Dish. This is an IFT podcast that dishes up perspectives from multiple disciplines relating to the science of food and developing your career in a rapidly changing professional ecosystem. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to bring you an event on behalf of the IFT Sustainable Food Systems Division. Now, this is a relatively new division, and you can sign up to join this division at ift.org.org. So if you'd like to be part of that division, please feel free to join. So most trend reports that you read for the last few years now have all highlighted the dramatic increase in consumer interest in plant-based foods. Our guest today is someone who's on the record as saying she dreams of a post-animal food system. She was one of the original scientists at both Impossible Foods and Kite Hill. And she's passionate about addressing climate change by moving away from animal agriculture, while at the same time ensuring nutrition and public health are not being compromised. I'm excited today to have Dr. Sue Klepholz as our guest. Dr. Klepholz earned her undergraduate degree in biology from Cornell University. She then went on to obtain her PhD in genetics from the University of Chicago and then further went on to complete studies to become a medical doctor at the University of Illinois. Dr. Klappoltz, welcome to Side Dish. Thank you so much for having me, Bruce. Now, I'm super excited about our conversation today, Sue, and I'd like to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your background and how you transitioned from being an academic and medical doctor to leading nutrition, health, and food safety at Impossible Foods one of the most well-known and well-respected plant-based food businesses in the world. Well, actually, it's a personal story for me. I got into working at Impossible Foods because my husband, Pat Brown, is the founder. And I wanted to, at first, just be helpful, do whatever I could. (laughs) I started out heading the cheese team because we had a cheese project that spun off into Kite Hill Foods. Um, And then I continued leading a cheese group to work on making commodity cheeses, like American cheese and mozzarella. And I got more and more involved. I went from being a part-time consultant to full-time pretty quickly. And when we started focusing on creating our first product, the Impossible Burger, I saw the need, as did the rest of the company, for having a nutrition and health function at the company. So I shifted gears into that. And that was sort of a natural fit for me because of my background in medicine and in science. Mm. And um, I went from there. Mm. Interesting. So I understand that your husband, Pat Brown, started Impossible Foods as a way to address climate change by moving away from animal agriculture. Yet the approach that you've taken was to produce products that look, cook, and taste like animal products. Why was that? Why not just go down the path of making edible plants more accessible and more tasty? So Pat's particular approach is is exactly why we addressed climate change the way we did. He, his approach was to look at how we can replace animals in the food system right. because he, he realized while he was on sabbatical and doing research about climate change that animal agriculture has the greatest impact on 
climate change, loss of biodiversity, than any, you know, than transportation, air pollution from factories, et cetera. So how to approach this, this problem? And that wouldn't be by just making more delicious plants, right? And plant-based foods that were um, novel and might appeal to, to anybody, but wouldn't appeal to meat eaters particularly. So the approach was to create products that authentically replicated the sensory handling, you know, flavor, taste, texture, all the attributes of meat that people love. And to do that so authentically that it would be an easy change for people to make. If we could replace the foods people love with foods that are made from plants, they're equally delicious, equally nutritious, and more sustainable, we could get people to make this change. And without this change, we're not going to have any impact on climate change. So, so really, you, you, what, what I'm hearing you saying is that you're unapologetically going after the meat eater rather than the vegetarian or the vegan. Abs- yes, absolutely. We don't want to dissuade vegetarians or vegans from trying our products and enjoying them. That's not who our products are made for. You're absolutely right. We want meat eaters to try our products, love them, and switch, and to make it easy for them to switch. Because you know we know it's hard for people to give up the foods they love, right, for, mm-hmm. for all kinds of reasons, natural cravings, uh, tra- family traditions, recipes they love. And if we give them something that behaves exactly like the food that we're asking them to move away from, we have a much greater chance of success. Right, right. So what was the breakthrough in thinking that led to the development of the original plant-based burger? What were some of the science-based challenges that you had to unlock or resolve? Well, I would say with making any product that's complex, like our products, we need to get a lot of pieces to fit together well. So we have to get all the sensory attributes of meat right. We have to get the handling properties right, the cooking properties, the grilling properties. And we, we need consumers to be able to use our products in all the recipes they're used to using animal meat in. We need to have nutrition that matches or surpasses the animal product. We don't want to leave people less healthy. Um, when when we create our plant-based world. Mm -hmm. We need ingredients with robust supply chains. We need manufacturing processes. And finally, we need to have a good refrigerated uh, shelf life for our products. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, we have to get everything to work together, right? So that in itself is very complex. But one of the key, one of the keys to making everything work was the discovery that heme was really important for flavor chemistry. I would say that was a key breakthrough. And another breakthrough, I think, just in the way we approached it was that we knew that we needed to hire a very diverse group of scientists to tackle this problem. Not just food scientists, but also chemists, neuroscientists, engineers. We needed people from a lot of different disciplines to look at this problem from different perspectives, and you know, and to and to uh, and and we asked these people to spend about five years doing basic R and D, just understanding flavor right. chemistry, understanding mm-hmm. how do you get plant ingredients to behave like meaty textures? How do you recreate muscle tissue, cartilage? fatty tissue and so on. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, we, we talk in product development a lot about needing multiple multidisciplinary and uh, teams to work together and and yet you've you've actually done that probably 
more overtly than than any other business that I can instantly recall. So you, it appears to me that you might actually end up being a case study for how how to do this right. Oh yeah, I think that's possible. Um, I think you know we're very proud of our R and D team. We have over two hundred people now working on all kinds of new products and also a lot of technology development and developing a toolkit, you know, finding new proteins with new properties that we haven't mm. uh, exploited yet, things like mm. that. Right. So you mentioned the, uh, the heme and, and up until uh, your product hit the marketplace, I, I don't think many of us were really thinking about heme as something that existed within plants. So can you tell us a story of, of how you came to identify particularly plant-based heme sure. as that critical ingredient? Yeah, I think Pat Pat suspect well he Pat knew, of course, as people knew that the color of meat going from pink to brown has a lot to do with heme chemistry, if not everything to do with heme chemistry. And he suspected that meat flavor might also have something to do with heme chemistry. Mm. So he started out looking for um different sources of heme and, you know, heme proteins from plants, from bacteria, from all different sources. And he knew about root nodules and that root nodules were important uh, in legumes and that they had a protein in them called leg hemoglobin. And so early on, he would go to this um, a hill uh, right near where we live and he would pull up clover and dissect the tiny little root nodules from clover on our kitchen table and and they were bright red and then he went into the lab and he actually isolated like hemoglobin from these root nodules Mm. so that was kind of even before the company started he felt that he had this key ingredient that would really make a difference we don't have to use um, meat flavor to create flavor we have chemistry that goes on in meat happening in our impossible beef. We have the color change happening in our impossible beef. We don't have to add natural or artificial colors like other uh, food companies need to do who are making plant-based meat. So I think it's a real uh, game changer for us. Mm. Mm. And and you also mentioned um, loss of biodiversity. Uh, So I want to take you up a little bit on on that as well. So one of the aspects of the vision of Impossible Foods when it started was to try to do something about that loss of species biodiversity due to uh, the impact of animal agriculture. So as Impossible Foods grows and the demand for your various raw materials increases and, and you know you get to the point where you start to challenge the volume of uh, product that that meat is currently doing that that means your volume is dramatically higher than it is today do you think there's a risk that we simply replace one type of monoculture with another and and what is impossible foods doing to ensure we avoid uh, further species loss yeah that those are good questions well first of all animals when you consider the amount of land that's devoted to grazing them and feeding them, it's about 45% of the earth's land. Mm, it's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot. And we could use a tiny fraction of that to grow all the crops we need to create pro- our products in equal quantity to all the animals. So so, so doing the math there, I think we, we're, we really are in a position if we could switch to all plant-based meats, you know, dairy, fish and so on, to, to really restoring a lot of the land to its natural ecosystem. 
Now, we can't bring back uh, species that have gone extinct naturally, but we can certainly recreate some of the, the diverse habitats for the animals we have and hopefully start to restore some of the numbers. Mm-hmm. Okay. So one of the criticisms that we often read about plant-based meats is that they're highly processed foods and and sometimes we even hear people talking about, well, they're offering little or no nutritional benefits over animal-based products. What's the real story? Can I ask you to explain what you mean by a term that I believe you've used, which is unapologetically processed? Yes. Um, I say unapologetic because we're, we have an important mission that we're on at Impossible Foods uh, as, as we've discussed, to fight climate change and the loss of species diversity by making sustainable and nutritious and affordable uh, alternatives to animal products. And we need to use processing and processed ingredients in order to create products that will compete with the animal product mm-hmm. in order to achieve this important mission. So I think as, a, as an example, just imagine taking whole soybeans, whole potatoes, coconut flesh, sunflower seeds, soybean root nodules, and placing them on a burger bun. All natural, all whole foods. It would be a disaster and it wouldn't move the needle on climate change. (laughs) We need food processing. That's why I'm not apologetic. In addition, our food is, uh, you know, I think the word processed food is it, you, it encompasses anything that involves a process, but when people talk about ultra-processed food, they often mean junk food. Mm. And I think it's, it's a, a true disservice to, to very nutritious foods like soy milk and plant-based burgers to lump them in with deep-fried donuts and potato chips because they're night and day. Right. And what's important, I believe, is that the Impossible Burger, if you compare it to burger, to burger from a cow, is just as nutritious in all the important ways, just has as much protein, highly um, high quality protein coming from soy. It has bioavailable heme iron, just like the heme iron coming from myoglobin. It has no cholesterol. It has less saturated fat. It has all kind, all the vitamins and minerals that are important from beef. And it has additional value. It has fiber, which you don't have in beef. It has more calcium than beef, more uh, potassium than beef, has none of the slaughterhouse contaminants and other issues that go along with beef. So I think that when you weigh it all together, uh, I I would argue that our product is healthier and more nutritious than the animal product, but it's certainly not less nutritious because it's processed. And... um, I, yeah, so I think I think what's very important also another another way to look at it is that we're not comparing our product to uh, lentils and rice and a green salad. We're not we're really we're comparing impossible beef to animal beef or chicken nuggets to chicken nuggets from animals. These are the comparisons we need to make. Right. It's very important to us to be nutritionally on par or better. That's a very important value. And to, so, you know, as a doctor, I believe in do no harm, first do no harm. And that's always on my mind, making sure that what we're doing is safe, uh, healthy and nutritious. So uh, we have to use processing to get to where we're going. And uh, that's why I'm quite unapologetic about that. Mm-hmm. And, and it's great that you've been able to really clarify that 
we're not even talking about nutritional parity. You, you, you actually do have some advantages from a nutritional point of view of this product versus a standard beef burger. That's true. Another good example would be folate. We just naturally have a lot of folate from coming in from um, soy protein concentrate and yeast extracts uh, in our products. And that's a very important vitamin, particularly for pregnant women and mm. for healthy fetal development. So, you know, I think that um, I, I, another thing that, that I keep in mind is where can we add uh, additional value? There, there's a limit to what you can feed a cow to enhance the nutrition of beef. But when you're creating your own products, you do have that opportunity to look at nutritional need in the areas that you're serving. So you might have products that are somewhat different in different parts of the world where the nutritional needs are different. And that's a lot easier to do with a product like ours. Is that something that you are prepared to tell us a little bit more about and what what exciting things you think might be on the horizon for you to be able to add even further value from a nutritional point of view? Or is that something that you would rather not talk about just just yet? Yeah, probably not quite yet. But it's always in it. I have a lot of people on my team who have uh, degrees in public health and we Mm. care a lot about what we can do to make it to make an impact. Sometimes we're up against um, regulations. For example, I had the idea at one point that it would be good to add vitamin D to our product, Mm. but it turns out that you're not allowed to add, at least in the U.S., not allowed to add vitamin D to plant-based meat analogs. So um, we couldn't do that. But, you know, if you think about um, nutrients of concern in the diet, it's really important to always be thinking, how can we, how can we help people meet these needs, um, maybe in a different way than they're used to. Mm. I think it's a really important product, the point that you've brought up, which is that the, um, you have a formulated product. And as a result of being a formulated product, you've got flexibility to actually modify the formulation to actually bring advantage to this product that, that it's really difficult to do when you when you're passing the food via a cow to, to us. Yes. It's it's much more challenging to do that. Yes, and we also think that we could be more delicious than the animal product in ways that people haven't even imagined. Well, that, because- that's that's an inspiring uh, a statement. <laughs> no. I'm also interested in how you might uh, do that. Well, I think it's just that we 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 tend to to try to replicate the sensory attributes of the animal project product when we start out. Hmm. But then we might make some innovations that lead us to believe that hmm, this texture might be better than typical ground beef. Let's right. do a consumer test and find out this, the flavor of our product might be, might be more delicious. We, in consumer tests, our chicken nuggets, for example, beat the leading brand of, uh, of uh, chicken from animals chicken nuggets, um, about 70 to 30 uh, in, cons- in blind consum- consumer tests. Wow. So I would say we, we have a product there that might be more delicious uh, than the animal product. Um, but we also have the ability, I you know, and this is kind of very future thinking, to create flavors and a- animal products that maybe don't really don't exist in the world or are just novel that that people might enjoy mm. but that's 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 very future thinking but i just i think what it points out is that 
when you create products from ingredients from plants or um, fermentation, you have the ability to be much more novel and inventive and go beyond where we are now in both deliciousness and, um, and nutrition. Mm, I mean, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, And it starts to really get the gears moving in your mind in terms of what represents more, more nutritious, more delicious than we, uh, where we currently are today. So fascinating. So over the last year, we've seen some softening of the growth of the plant-based meats category. So what's really happening there? Is this category starting to find its natural level or are consumers dissatisfied with products or is there something else going on? Can you give us the inside track on what what that's all about? I I don't feel that I'm really someone with an inside inside track there. I think that, um, yeah, it's not really my area of expertise, but I, I would say that I think we're just beginning. I think we're at the beginning of a revolution in plant-based foods. And I think that uh, the more people, the more trial we get, the more acceptance we'll get. I think we need, we are actually, you know, spreading our products all around the world. We're in, we're in lots of different countries now. We, we just launched in the UK uh, with two products. I think the more people that try our products, the more people that know about them, and also other plant-based players in this field as well, the more the more trial there is, the more uh, the more it becomes common to expect that you go in a restaurant and there's going to be a plant-based meat alternative on the menu. Mm-hmm. The more all the fast food restaurants around the world start putting plant-based burgers and chicken nuggets on their menus, I think people will will like what they try. They'll learn more about why it's so important, not just to the to the planet, but to public health, to their personal health, and 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 make the change. And I think also with scale, we'll get the price down. We'll be able to compete economically more with animal-based products. And when that happens, I think that will also open the door to a lot more trial and then uh, adoption of uh, plant-based burgers and such i mean i think the runway that you've got in terms of uh, potential market is still very very long i mean if you look at the amount of beef that we consume as a society and you you look at the amount of plant-based meat that's come into the market it's still a very small percentage of the larger pie yes so your runway is still lots and lots of people still to uh, to convert if you like yes we're hopeful about that. Yes. <laughs> but it probably leads us to, um, you know, we've talked about changes that you could make in the future to your product. I want to bring you back to 2019 uh, where Impossible Foods effectively did a major relaunch of the product based on a formulation improvement. What were the improvements that were made back in 2019 and why were they done? So um, there are a number of reasons, but um, one reason was to come out with a product that would be more versatile and, and one that would have better, uh, a better nutritional profile. Mm. So we did a few things. We uh, reduced sodium by 30%. We decreased saturated fat and total fat. We switched from having a primarily wheat-based product to a soy-based product, which gave it a higher quality protein. Mm. 
And in the process, we created a product that was much more versatile. We were preparing to go into retail. Up until then, we'd only been in, in food service um, from 2016 and you know, till after we launched our version two. And we realized that um, our original product had some aspects of its handling that weren't ideal. It didn't stay together really well on a grill, for example. Right. And we needed a product that consumers, when they brought it into their home, they could make anything they were used to making with ground beef. So those are those are some of the motivating factors, better handling and better nutrition. And we made a product that was more delicious in consumer tests. Mm. So we achieved quite a few different landmarks there. Mm. So what other areas of biotech innovations is your business working on to further drive the sustainability of our food system? Well, I, I mentioned a little bit about um, looking for protein, you know, developing a protein toolkit. So one of the things that we're looking at in terms of being innovative is to be able to take a lot of different proteins and isolate from these, from these a lot of different plant sources and isolate from them whole proteins, groups of proteins, individual proteins that have functional properties that are important. And I think that's a whole untapped um, area. The other is to look at ways to create new textures mm. so that we can make whole cuts, um, you know, uh, complex kind of structures like, like bacon, um, seafood, and so on. Mm, mm, interesting. So as we move to to finish up here today, because we've covered a fair bit of ground, what advice would you give to those folks who are listening that have been inspired by the information that you've shared? How can they get involved in this world of plant-based foods? Well, um, I would just say that it's important. I, I understand from this audience, very sophisticated audience, and probably already knows a lot about um a lot about food science, but I would say just in general, I think it's important to to really make the connection between diet and planetary health, diet and public health, and diet and individual health. And I didn't get a chance to really talk a lot about that, or actually some of it at all today. But you know, there's so much, so many public health issues that are very much tied to to our animal agriculture heavy diet. Um, including viral pandemics and multiple antibiotic resistant strains and mm. and foodborne illness. So there's so many connections between the way we eat and the fact that we eat animals, the way we raise and slaughter animals, and then and then they become part of our diet that impacts health. So I would love it for people to really learn as much as they can about those connections and think about ways that they can make change, uh, even small changes in their diet to help us achieve, you know, the mission of, uh, of really um, having an impact on climate change, but at the same time, an impact on, on human health and public health. And I think also I would, you know, I think that this industry is really in its infancy and I would encourage food science students and scholars to work on solving some of these problems. There are a lot of untapped areas. There are a lot of companies interested in hiring um, bright, creative people. So those, those are some of my parting thoughts. Mm. 
Well, look, I want to thank you very much today, Sue, for, for all your time and for sharing with us your views on how we all can work together towards a, a much more sustainable food system. I, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks also to the IFT Sustainable Food Systems Division. So they've managed to uh, bring Sue to this forum and uh, it's been a, a wonderful experience for me to, to listen and learn from Sue today. So while we covered a lot of ground today, I would also like to point out to our listeners that there's an excellent article that was published in the December 21, January 22 edition of our great IFT magazine, Food Technology where you can find an interview that was conducted by IFT executive editor Mary Ellen Kuhn with Dr. Klapholz. If you missed it, you can still access that article on the IFT website. Now, if you're enjoying Side Dish, please let us know by leaving a review wherever you source your podcasts or by connecting with IFT. You can find us on Twitter using the handle at IFT and by searching the Institute of Food Technologists on Facebook and LinkedIn. For more on the subject of sustainability, be sure to visit our website at ift.org and type in whatever the the subject that you're interested in into the search box, and that will give you access to a ton of extra resources. Thank you to listening to Side Dish. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. Have a great day, everyone. Mm-hmm.